Slate Spoiler Specials are brought to you by Shutterstock.com. With over 700,000 high-quality video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. For 30% off your new account, go to Shutterstock.com and use the offer code SPOILER2. I'm Dana Stevens here with a Slate Spoiler Special podcast on Side Effects, the new Steven Soderbergh film. Joining me from Slate's DC office is Dan Coyce. Hey, Dan. Hi, Dana. You are a senior editor at Slate. I am in the culture department, and um, I fancy myself Slate's resident Soderbergologist, although with the caveat that I'm not sure if it's Soderbergologist or Soderbergologist. Or Soderbergian. Soderbergian. Yes, you you are our author of uh, Completist, which is a feature Slate does where they force some poor soul to watch every single movie or listen to every single album or read every single book by a given artist. And you chose Steven Soderbergh for yours. But I was not a poor soul because it was a very enjoyable experience. I watched all his movies and then also watched every TV show that he's directed, um, as many short films of his that I could find. You read his book. I read his book, his books. Yeah, the poor soul thing was completely a joke. I can't wait to do a completist myself, and I'm constantly coming up with fantasy completists in my mind. But they do seem very, very daunting. You're really steeped in that person's work for a long time. So has that made you feel different permanently about Steven Soderbergh? It's given me, I think, a lot more affection for even his uh, his most foolish experiments <laughs> because they they seem all of a piece. Like I, once you sort of get the sense of the 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 experimental verve that he brings to his projects and his willingness to just try stuff, it makes you view even the things that don't quite work out with sort of a greater affection and a greater tolerance. Right. And also take what seems to be on the surface a completely varied of, right, that no movie is ever going to be about the same thing or be in the same genre as the last movie, but you can nonetheless trace some kind of a a line from one to the next. Right. And you can make pairings, sort of wine pairings between Soderbergh movies that really actually have a lot to do with each other. And so for this one, Side Effects, the pairing I would make is to a, a very old Soderbergh movie, one that, I mean, a lot of people didn't see when it first came out, but which this really reminded me of in the end, uh, which is The Underneath. But we should start by warning people that this is a spoiler special podcast. So if you've not seen the movie, you should not listen to it unless you want to get spoiled. And in this case, even though I'm pro-spoilers in general, I would urge people to see the movie first before you see listen to us or in, or indeed read anything about this movie, which I think is a lot more fun if you even don't know what kind of movie it is going in. Yeah, because this really is, I guess you, you would say, a whodunit or a why, why she done it. It, it definitely it's, is a very twist-based movie where yeah. you want to go in knowing as little as possible. Yeah, I mean, it's a noir, basically, but like a noir in which the femme fatale actually blows it at the end. Uh, and the And the noir hero who usually might not be sort of overcome by fate and circumstance, in fact, comes out victorious. I think, if I understand the ending of the movie correctly, which I'm, I'm not sure I do. But let's, usually before we get into the spoilage, I just have a quick thumbs up, thumbs down kind of reaction. Did you like side effects? Oh, yeah, I liked it a lot. Yeah, I did too. I enjoyed it a lot. I think it, there was there's some serious eye rolling toward the end and some kind of absurd plot twist that I couldn't finally go with. But it's it's a movie that watches. It's a movie that can can be watched very easily. Oh yeah, like when this comes out on TNT in like four years, you are gonna I'm gonna stay up till two a.m. watching. Right. This oh one. yeah, it flies by completely. Yeah. Flies by. So let's give a basic setup here. The storytelling structure of this is is nonlinear. At first, you think it's nonlinear in a way that we're used to in this kind of um, murder mystery movie, in that it starts off with the aftermath of what seems to be a murder or some kind of bloody incident, right? And that's actually a flash forward to an event that will recur later, not at the end of the movie, as you might expect. I think there's a lot of movies that start off with that sort of flash forward and spend the rest of the movie getting up to that point. 
Instead, this movie gets to that point about a third of the way through and then goes from there. Right. So and what we see is a, a bloody apartment. There's blood on the floor. Um, we see a gift that someone has given someone else, um, a boat, uh, like a wooden, a carved wooden boat. Uh, and then we, we see that there's been a struggle and there's blood everywhere. And then we get a caption that says three months earlier. And uh, it flashes back to um, uh, Emily Taylor, who's played by Rooney Mara, um, meeting her husband, Martin, who's played by Channing Tatum, as he gets out of prison. Um, and we begin to see their renewed life together. He's been in prison for insider trading. It becomes clear that they had like a great lucrative life together before and now she's in somewhat reduced circumstances in New York. Um, we never quite learn what her job is, do we? She works in some sort of modern-looking office that seems to be maybe a, a journalism office or a design office or something, but we never yeah, quite Yeah, I thought maybe like, a, like maybe an ad agency or something. It was unclear. Um, we know they have something to do with PSAs, but uh, we don't know if they make them or distribute them or what. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but she – I mean she has a job and potentially before she did not have to have one because they lived in a big house, we find out. Um, but, uh, but their life has been turned upside down by him going to jail for a while for insider trading. Uh, but they're starting to try and put it back together and she seems so happy to have him back. But it's clear that she is also struggling with depression and in a very arresting scene just a little bit after he gets out of prison, she, she goes into her car in a parking garage and drives her car straight into a wall as fast as she can. And that's when, after that happens, that's when she meets uh, the our other main character in this movie, who's Dr. Jonathan Banks, played by Jude Law, who's a psychiatrist. Um, and he is the first person who meets her in the hospital from the mental health field. And he um, takes over her treatment for what is clearly depression. Um, and this begins Emily's sort of epic journey through a number of different meds, um, through trying out a couple of different kinds of treatments, through talk therapy and antidepressants and different inhibitors um, in an attempt to find the right thing that will work for her. And at times she's up and at times she's down and she's clearly suffering. And we feel like we see where this movie is going, that, um, that her depression is taking over her and that no matter what her psychiatrist prescribes, it won't work. There's also a lot of setup in the first third or so establishing that Jude Law is this good psychiatrist, right? That he's, right. he's very ethical. He's very engaged. He cares about his patients. And, uh, and, and that becomes really important in the second or the last two thirds of the movie. Although we also see that he is not – I mean he's not perfect in sort of the classical doctor sense. He is, he's involved in a trial for uh, an antidepressant drug where he, you know, he has a big fancy lunch with a the, with the pharmaceutical rep who runs this trial and they lure – and they encourage him to do it and he gets a big check for doing it. Although we also see him talking about this drug with one of his clients and he's very upfront with the client that he that this is a drug that he is being paid to be part of the study. And the, the, the client is very excited about the idea of being part of this study of this new drug might help her. And this isn't the drug. It should be noted that uh, that he puts – Emily on. It's, it's, she, he puts her on a number of drugs, but not this one, not the one that he's being paid for the study for. Um, but the, one of the side effects of one of the drugs that she is put on seems to be sleepwalking, that she will, in the in, while taking a nap or while asleep at night, will just get up and start doing things. And it's fairly spooky when this happens. And, um, and Martin Channing Tatum, her husband, notices that this happens. Um, 
And uh, and this all leads up to the climactic scene about a third of the way through when uh, Martin comes home. He's got flowers for her um, and he gets home and she seems to be chopping vegetables, preparing dinner. But she seems to be totally asleep doing it. And he approaches her in the kitchen and she turns around with a knife and stabs him like five times. And he drops bleeding to the floor and she walks through his his pool of blood to her bed and curls up and goes back to sleep. And, and that's the point that we see the same shot that we opened with. Right? Right. So we've gotten back to now to the beginning point. And I have to say that in the screening that I saw, that moment was a complete shock to everyone. It really oh, was yeah. a true – I mean, this, it really does belong in a spoiler special because nobody saw it coming. Especially right. no, at, that, at that point in the movie, nobody saw it coming. Right. You know, we knew that something was going to happen and we knew that maybe it would be soon even. But but I don't – no one in my screening also expected that Channing Tatum, our big name – star would get killed by his wife uh, in this movie. And so it immediately turns from sort of a, you know, a a movie about pharmaceutical companies and depression treatment to a movie that is sort of about that, but is also something completely different, which is, as you say, a why'd she do it? It's not a question whether she did it. The question is why. Um, and, And so that sort of it raises the issue of, well, what is this movie really about? And it's about, in the end, her and her nefarious plan to exploit the known side effect of this depression medication to kill her husband and uh, achieve a great payout with the help of her lover, um, who is uh, Dr. – what's her name? Dr. Victoria Siebert. Right. Her previous psychiatrist. Her previous Jude psychiatrist Law. played by Catherine Zeta-Jones. And see, so you're really – you're compressing a lot of revelations into a couple sentences because basically Catherine Zeta-Jones enters the movie as a, as a consulting psychiatrist and somebody who talks to Jude Law about the patient early on. But she doesn't emerge as a possible player in the murder scenario until pretty late on in the movie. Right. If you right. had to – let's take let's, – let's get – this is a very asynchronous movie, right? The way it's constructed. Let's get synchronous and take it from the beginning and try to go through everything that happens because this is like one of those absurdly far-fetched movies plot so that I'm sure if you look at it carefully enough, there's something in there that doesn't make any sense, although it is very satisfying to watch it unfold on screen. So at some point in the past, Rooney Mara was Catherine Zeta-Jones's patient, right? Right. And Catherine Zeta-Jones fell in love with her. Right. Right? Uh, Right. they, They had an affair. And then at that, and was she married already to Martin, to Channing Tatum at that point? Uh, I think Channing Tatum was in jail. So let's go back even further. So Rooney Mara marries Channing Tatum and they have a wonderful life. And then he takes the fall for insider trading. And Like at their wedding, if you want to believe that flashback or at their engagement party or something. Yeah, right? or at some big shebang. Um, and he gets arrested in, uh, like in the driveway and carted off. And so she uh, is facing depression up there in Connecticut or wherever it was that they lived. And she goes to her Connecticut doctor, Catherine Zeta-Jones. They fall in love. Um, they uh, And it becomes clear, I think, to Catherine Zeta-Jones that whether Rooney Mara is actually depressed or not, um, there is a way for them to exploit the fact that um, drug companies stock will will often fall or rise precipitously based on a big news story. And so their goal is to engineer a news story in which a person on a particular depression medication, because of the sleepwalking side effect, um, actually kills her husband. 
And therefore, Rooney Mara will be the subject, a person with a history of depression. She'll engineer a way to get herself on this medication. She'll create a documented uh, uh, experience of having the side effect of sleepwalking. Meanwhile, Catherine Zeta-Jones up there in Connecticut will short a whole bunch of the stock for the pharmaceutical company that makes this medication. And when the story breaks that Rooney Mara has killed her husband uh, as a result of the side effect of this medication. The stock will plummet. Catherine Zeta-Jones will cash in. Eventually, it'll all blow over. Rooney Mara will get out of prison because because she assumes she will because she will be – Not guilty deemed, by reason of insanity. Right, right, not guilty by reason of insanity. Eventually, she'll get out and they'll split the windfall. So that's the plan. And so the second half of the movie becomes Jude Law unraveling this plan and doing his best to get in the way of this plan in any way he can because he feels he's been taken advantage of because his practice has collapsed as a result of being known as the doctor who prescribed this thing to a woman who then killed her husband, even though he seems honestly fairly blameless from a medical standpoint. I mean, it's not hard to understand why he prescribes the things he prescribes, and he seems to really care about her as a patient. Um, a woman who is doing a great job at playing someone in need. Uh, but uh, but so he is trying to unravel this plot and and get in the way of it. I think that is one of the most successful parts of the movie is you might think of it as like the, the, the third quarter of the movie or so. It's the part where, you know, we know that something nefarious is up with Rooney Mara and probably Catherine Zeta-Jones too, but we, neither we nor Jude Law knows exactly what it is. Jude Law's life is falling apart around him and you sort of, you find out about his obsession with the paranoid plot before you know whether the paranoid plot actually exists or not. So there's a portion right. of the movie where you actually think, wait, maybe this is becoming a movie about a man who spirals down into madness because of a crazy paranoid conspiracy theory which is actually the kind of character that Jude Law played in, in Contagion, the Steven Spielberg right. movie. Right. So all the scenes of him tapping feverishly on a computer were very reminiscent of Contagion, where he was totally unhinged. And I thought but the it, movie was going there. I thought the yeah. movie was going to essentially end with, you know, Jude Law has lost everything because of this crazy idea that he's concocted. So when you start to realize that the crazy idea he's concocted is actually true, and it might even get more Baroque than that, then it's, it's, it's kind of a great twist. Right. And then I thought it was going to be the kind of movie where Jude Law is driven crazy by a true... Uh, fantasy, like, like a true um, plot that he discovers, but he can't get anyone else to believe it. Um, and so that for a while, the movie goes that way. Like he's trying to convince people, the authorities, the police, that in fact, Rooney Mara was in on this murder and she should have been found guilty. But at this point, the police are like, we already tried her and she got off because of your testimony, dude. So we can't do anything. So shut up. But she does have to go to a mental hospital. This is part of her, her treatment terms, right? For getting the, the not guilty by reason of insanity plea. She has to go away to a psychiatric institution until such time as her doctor, who is Jude Law, determines that she's ready to get out. Right. And so that becomes his his uh, leverage at getting back at her is that he holds her eventual freedom in his hands. And so as long as he can, as long as she believes that he understands what the plot is, she will be willing to go along with the things that he demands in order to eventually get out and share in the windfall that she ought, that she feels is rightfully hers. But so it's a long, complicated plot. And you're right that when you just say it out loud, it's Seems totally absurd, as almost the plot of of like any twisty whodunit would probably sound if you just describe it out loud. Like, why do you need a Maltese Falcon anyway? <laughs> I mean, I think the most the most extreme. I guess I would have believed it more if they were just simply stealing insider trading tips from Channing Tatum's computer. I mean, when you're married to someone who's an inside trader, you obviously have a lot of 
different avenues to get at that information and valuable information. So the idea that they would create this entire crazy scheme about the drug Oblixa and shorting out the stock and all of that stuff on the gamble that it would all work and that it would all break in the press the way that they wanted it to seems pretty far-fetched. I mean, I have to say, a part of me was getting pretty eye-rolly when it suddenly became the case that evil lesbians will kill us all. And they cut to this <laughs> kind of sexy scene of Catherine Zeta-Jones and Rooney Mara getting it on and you realize, oh, okay, it was all in the name of the evil lesbians. It was almost like something from a 90s. The gender policy of it were really sort of, you know, um, fatal attraction style. Or like Bound. It reminded me of Bound. Oh, Bound. Oh, man. The, the Bound Wachowski is a siblings movie. movie. <laughs> I mean, it's not like, it's not as completely over the top as that, but yes, the evil lesbians are plotting against us aspect of it. Like, I just found that really, like, enjoyable, like ridiculously enjoyable in the way that an overheated, pulpy thriller ought to be. And that's why in the end it reminded me of The Underneath, which is another, a very old Soderbergh movie starring Peter Gallagher and like like an actress, I can't even remember what her name is because she never did anything after this movie, Um, and Peter Green. And it was also like a twisty, moody thriller, which is about Uh, a guy getting wrapped up with a woman who knows more than she lets on. But in that, in that movie, spoiler alert for a movie that came out in like 1991, um, Peter Gallagher, he, he, he doesn't reign supreme. He doesn't win out in the end. I mean, he gets killed in the end. Um, as I recall, because he is fatally one step behind the femme fatale. And it turns out in this movie, we think First, we think there is no femme fatale. Then we think he's like five steps behind the femme fatale. But the the pleasure of this movie is watching him catch up uh, as the movie goes on until he's even with her. And then he's ahead of her. And then he's so far ahead of her that he triumphs in the end and he gets his life back. So the final – I'm not sure that I love him getting his life back at the end. I think I might have liked I – don't, I don't want Jude Law's character to die off or anything. But he's such an ambiguous character. I would have liked both of them to have ended up kind of fucked at the end basically. Mm. So the last thing we see of Jude Law, he's gotten his family back, right? The woman and her son, his stepson, who left him because of this whole scandal and because of another scandal from his past that was uncovered have come back to him. We don't know exactly how, but essentially he's regained his good name, right? right. And he's managed to get Rooney Mara after she had been released from the psychiatric after she had been released from the psychiatric institution, recommitted again. And what's the deal quite at the end? Essentially, he can keep her there forever on Thorazine and otherwise she'll go to jail. What, what leverage does he have at the end? Well, Isn't so it double get, jeopardy still? Well, she gets out um, and basically strikes a deal to um, to get Catherine Zeta-Jones caught, right? She wears a wire and she gets Catherine Zeta-Jones caught and she gets charged. And so she... My guess is, and I don't think this is made explicit, is that she can't be tried again for the murder, but she can be tried for conspiracy and insider trading and all the other things she's actually guilty of. Um, And so the leverage he has over her is that he got her out of the mental hospital, but she has to stick to his regimen completely. And if she resists or or fights against it, she'll be immediately recommitted. And so as punishment, essentially, for what she's done to him, he tells her that even though he basically knows that she isn't actually depressed and she has no depression-related mental health problems, it's just that she's maybe a sociopath, he's going to put her on Thorazine and drug her basically into submission for the rest of her life. And when she resists against that and tells him she's she's he's full of it and she's going to 
she's going to, you know, fuck this shit. Um, he has the police waiting and they send her straight back to the mental hospital where she will live out her days. Right. And so the last time you see her when she's kind of spaced out in the mental hospital, she's not supposed to be faking it. She actually is zombied out on drugs at that point. Right. Right. Wow. So it's also, I mean, in addition to all the other things it is, it seems like this is a very harsh portrait of the pharmaceutical industry, right? I mean, right. I think. And of psychiatrists, kind of, in that, like, he, I guess he's doing all this for good, but, like, the amount of power he has over her life once she is part of the criminal justice and mental health system is, like, astonishing. That, and so, in his case, he's using it to regain his good name, and it's hard to argue that. She doesn't belong somewhere far away from people who she might eventually kill for money. But at the same time, if he was wrong, he he has the power to essentially keep her drugged and in a hospital forever. Right. And there are some things that he does along the way of trying to recapture his good name that are extremely dishonorable things, right? Yeah. Like giving her this injection of fake sodium pentothal. So he's trying to give her a truth drug, but he actually gives her saline to see what she does. In other words, he gives her an opportunity to lie, to dramatically lie and act out a whole a whole fake sodium pentothal scene to prove his right. own point. Right. All right. Well, I want to talk to you about the performances in this movie and the whole the whole feel of it, the editing, the music. But first, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Slate Spoiler Special is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. At Shutterstock.com, you'll find the perfect video for your next creative project, website, advertisement, multimedia presentation, or any other type of film project. You can go there and choose from over 700,000 high-quality stock video clips, 2D animations, and 3D motion graphics. Shutterstock sources video clips from around the world and puts them at your fingertips. You can try Shutterstock today by signing up for a free account. No credit card needed. Just start an account, begin using Shutterstock to help you imagine what your next project might look like, and save any video selections you find. Once you decide to purchase, use the offer code SPOILER2, and new accounts will receive 30% off any package. That's Shutterstock.com, and again, for 30% off new accounts, use the offer code SPOILER2. The Spoiler Special thanks Shutterstock for their support. All right, so back to side effects, Dan. So we both agree it's a lot of fun. I think that you were able to ride a little bit more with the uh, some of the last act twists than, than I was. But uh, I think that what really makes this movie ultimately is a couple of the performances. Rooney Mara, who's never really stood out for me, I really didn't like Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, and I felt that her performance in it, while compelling, was essentially just sort of styling. You know, she just looked really cool in it right. and sort of stared blankly very well. And she was and she was forceful enough to watch in that movie. But I can't say that it made me want to race out and see more things with Rooney Mara in it. This role, on the other hand, I think she just absolutely hits out of the park. Yeah, I love her in this. Like she, I mean, it's a fun showy role in that you get to play depressed and you get to weep in scenes and you get to also play kind of evil and bad and unhinged. There's a lot going on, but I also just really bought her as all those things. And so the job that the movie needs her to do is to be really credible as someone who's seriously, dangerously depressed. And then the fact that she does such a good job at that as an actress helps us believe her character later as someone who can credibly fake being totally depressed. Right. And ultimately, the fact that she's a sociopath just completely comes out in the performance. There's not any moment where she's diagnosed or where we sort of see her evilly scheming or sort of we never hear her statement of purpose of I'm an evil person, right? It all comes from artifice, from seeing her adopt all these different personas and effortlessly slip from one to the next. And I love that late um, montage where Soderbergh reveals, he revisits earlier moments in the movie when we thought she was doing certain things 
things that a depressed person would be doing. And then we see that she's actually doing things that a duplicitous murderer would be doing, like carrying Visine in her purse so she can appear to be sobbing at various public events and so forth. Right, or carefully buckling her seatbelt before she drives into the wall so she'll make sure she doesn't actually die. Right, and all of that stuff Jude Law sort of puts together, but we don't really see how it all hangs together until that montage. And even though that's kind of a classic thriller technique to go back and revisit earlier moments in the movie, I just thought that one was so so cleverly done that it, it makes you rethink everything that came before. Right, and she's really great. I really like Channing Tatum in this movie. I mean, he's functionally playing Channing Tatum, like good guy Channing Tatum, who's trying to get their lives back together after taking the fall. And uh, and But I just, I mean, I like him in this role and I like his willingness, I think, related to uh, how much he and Steven Soderbergh seem to really love each other to play basically like the Drew Barrymore in Scream role of the name actor who it turns out has like nothing to do with. Right. Or the Janet Lee in Psycho almost, right? right? In fact, right. he dies at around the same point in the movie as Janet Lee does. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So what did you think of Jude Law? Like, He's an actor who I can really... Uh, give or take, depending. What did you think of him in this? I like where he's going with his career lately. I mean, I, I like that he's lost some of his youthful beauty. You know, he was always so great at playing the, the object of desire. To me, the ultimate Jude Law role is is, is Bozy, the, the lover of Oscar Wilde in the movie Wilde. And that was, I think, maybe the first thing I saw him in, too. But that's so dependent on that, you know, that incredible youthful beauty that he had. So now that he's a little bit balding and, you know, a little bit of a middle-aged guy, I think he's taking interesting roles. I like the psychiatrist character a lot. And I loved, as I said, that part where you can't tell whether he's a good guy or a bad guy and you're sort of going down the spiral with him and, and trying to figure out where it's all going to end. Right. Um, and I mean, so all this also points to really great casting, right, which has always been a hallmark of Soderbergh movies that he is really good at finding the right person for a role. And he is great at getting like, you know, career level performances out of people. They're the list of actors who've never been better than they've been in a Steven Soderbergh movie is endlessly long and add to it Channing Tatum, add to it, uh, I mean, Catherine Zeta-Jones in Traffic, not in this movie, but add to it at this point Rooney Mara. Yeah, Catherine Zeta-Jones is someone that I can find an utter wet blanket. In some roles, I just feel like she drags the whole movie down with her. But she was good in this. I mean, she's, she's good at camp, you know? She does a right. good, evil, mustache-twirling lesbian villain. All right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, when she twirled her mustache. That's not actually a spoiler. She doesn't actually have a mustache. <laughs> um, but so uh, Soderbergh claims this is his last movie, his last theatrical movie. He, he's got his HBO biopic of Liberace still yet to air. But uh, are you buying it? Are you buying that uh, that Steven Soderbergh is done? I mean, you're the Soderbergh expert, but how many movies has he made in the last two years? Four movies? And He's made four movies in the last 18 months. That's crazy. It's like Irish twin movies, Irish right. quadruplet movies. What is it? Is Magic Mike Contagion? Um, Haywire and this. Haywire and this, right. Yeah. I, I just can't believe that someone that's that prolific is, is going to stop working at age 50. He's only 50. Right. Uh, I mean, I don't buy it either, but I do buy that he would take a break. I mean, I think that the, he's a man of extremely widely varied interests. Um, I don't know if you ever saw, I can't remember where it was, but someone once posted uh, his his yearly reading calendar that he just keeps as like a like an Excel spreadsheet. And it got out there somewhere. I don't know if he leaked it or his assistant leaked it or if he just gave it to someone to run as a as like a piece. But but it's amazing. Like the guy, because of work, because he's reading stuff for work, um, 
and because he's watching movies for work. But his media consumption is just like outlandishly off the scale. Like he reads like a book a day basically uh, and watches like two or three movies a day and listens to albums and goes to plays. And he's directed plays and he's written two really, really good books. And the guy just has a lot of interest. It turns out also he wants to paint. That's what actually what he wants to be doing right now. But so I can see him doing all these things. But he is such a natural with a camera. And even beyond that, he seems to legitimately love the act of shooting so much. I mean, he famously has always loved shooting a movie way more than he's loved any of the other parts of doing a movie. You know, he he does his own right, camera work usually, right? He's right, the guy he, behind the camera. Yes, he, he under the his pseudonym Peter Andrews. He's he's been the cinematographer for I think all of his movies since Traffic, maybe almost all of them. But he just loves doing that. He loves solving those problems on a set. He's always said that one of the reasons he's retiring is that he can no longer figure out a new way to tell narrative stories that remains interesting to him. But I do think that even if he spends 10 years not directing movies, he's going to be spending a lot of those 10 years trying to figure out a new way to tell stories that's interesting to him. And I would not bet against him eventually finding that way and coming back. Oh, wow. I'm envious of his daily life. I'm just reading books and watching movies and going to plays all day long, figuring out what to do next. And he does have a TV project that's coming up, right? What's the Liberace project? So, yeah. So he made him, he made this biopic of Liberace starring Michael Douglas and Matt Damon um, that they tried to sell to studios, but no one would buy it. So they just sold it to HBO. Um, and so that could have been his last theatrical movie, but it turns out his last project is going to be an HBO movie and he's professes himself to be very excited about it. Uh, that's already shot. That's in the can. Um, so, I mean, so I don't know when he actually shot uh, Contagion, but let's say he shot Contagion two and a half years ago. So that is five movies in two and a half years that he's actually shot, edited, and gotten in the can ready for produ- ready for airing. Right. Yeah, those are not the actions of a man who's putting himself out to pasture by any means. Right, right. All right, Dan, well, thank you for bringing your Soderbergh knowledge and enthusiasm to the table. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.